Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The recent upsurge in violence in the Idlib province of Syria is a reminder that the war there hasn't gone away. Somebody whose direct experience of that war is Irish journalist Norma Costello, who's been reporting from that region over the last five years. She was at one stage embedded with Kurdish fighters and she's worked and lived on and off in some of the most dangerous regions of the world right now. Norma was one of the first people to interview Lisa Smith, the county loud woman who's currently before the courts on terrorism-related charges. That case is sub judice at the moment. But Norma has also encountered other personnel associated with ISIS who had Irish backgrounds. She's joining us today to talk about her experiences and what she's learned from them. Norma, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hello, Mick. Norma, first of all, I'd just like to ask you how and why you ended up reporting on the war in Syria. Well, I started initially reporting on conflict in Turkey. Um, so I started covering the war against, well, the war between the PKK and the uh, Turkish military in 2014 and 2015. And because at that time the borders were so porous with ISIS moving literally kind of wherever they wanted to go at that time, um, you know, you encountered a lot of interesting well, interesting is an interesting word to use. But anyway, a lot of interesting people traveling across these borders at that time. Everything was quite, everything was in flux. Um, then I was basically detained in Turkey and unable to report from there anymore. So I started to get interested in the Kurdish question, which brought me to Iraq and then subsequently to Syria. What brought you to Turkey in the first place? It's, it's an unusual choice of uh, conflict, if you want to put it that way, to, um, to decide to report on. Well, I've been going to the Balkans for nearly a decade now. And um, then I obviously like the kind of logical conclusion for people who are interested in the Balkans is to go to Turkey at some stage. And like most people, I would have stayed in the west of Turkey. Um, but then I traveled in the east. Now, initially at that time, it was just a, a visit, you know, but I saw what was happening to the civilian population in the southeast of Turkey and how underreported it was. And so that was sort of what led me to that type of thing. At that time, there were curfews imposed in the southeast of Turkey. So each city would have a curfew where they would be on lockdown. Civilians weren't allowed out and the Turkish military were carrying out an offensive against people. So uh, countless people lost their lives in one of the most underreported wars in the last you know, couple of years. And that was between the Turkish authorities and the Kurdish independence fighters? The PKK, yeah. PKK, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and that's where you found yourself reporting from there. And that's, I suppose, the natural progression then that you find yourself reporting on um, the war in Iraq and Syria and ISIS. Yeah. And I mean, what was happening then, you know, you would sit in a cafe in Gaziantep in the border and you would see actually ISIS, <laughs> ISIS members traveling freely through and around that border area. So like Surich would have been a town that they would have happily passed through um, you know, unhindered, you know, so we were seeing all of this happening all the time. 
And then the other thing that was going on then in tandem with that was I started to cover the migration. So I was looking at all of the people that were going through the Balkan route and then up into Europe in 2015. I don't know if you remember how contentious all of that was. Yeah. And um, one thing that struck me was, OK, well, where do all these people come from? And so that's what kind of led me to Iraq and to I spent an awful lot of time with the Yazidi people and, you know, learned their horrific story. And then step by step, you know, you kind of you develop more contacts, you develop um, a greater knowledge of the region. And then, you know, one thing leads you to another thing. And then I, I started to spend a lot of time reporting from Syria. So I think last year I did three reporting trips into the country um, and I will be going back to the Middle East in the next couple of weeks. So it does become something that, you know, the longer you do it, a lot of people are stepping back now because it is quite traumatic to continuously report on wars that nobody seems to care about. But um, but it is sort of something that I like my particular type of work. I'm still I still have a few more things that I'm chasing up. Um, but you like that. I think, you know, it, it, it can it can be a tough job. Well, I'm sure I'm sure it can. And in terms of your own circumstances, Norma, do, do you operate alone or are you part of a crew uh, in, in terms of um, reporting on the area? So I, I operate independently. So I go in by myself. I have um, a team of, you know, local fixers um, and local camera people and local, you know, photographers that I can liaise with and work you know, with in the field. But what we're starting to see is like news agencies are stripping down their foreign budgets. So people like me who are, I guess, a bit more nimble and lean um, are quite busy then because of that. But in terms of me going in, no, I go in independently. I go in alone. The impression one has is that particularly for a woman and possibly more so for a Western woman, that it can be an even more dangerous place than for a, a male reporter, for instance, is that the case, do you think? Well, like this, it's kind of a strange one because Middle Eastern culture is like, you know, incredibly hospitable. And um, so people do want to take care of you because you are a woman. But the other side of that, and I think this is sort of something that's slightly more relevant, would be that the, the biggest victims for what happened, especially with people like ISIS, the biggest victims were always women. So when you're talking to people, you know, I, I've seen this like men going into, let's say, talk to women who've been victim, victims of some of their really, you know, statistic um, practices and, you know, raping young girls and, and you know, just the, the general fear that they inflicted on the female communities that they came across. And um, those stories are very hard, I think, for, for a man perhaps to get, whereas a woman can kind of, you're a lot, again, you, you're given access to spaces that I think men, one probably shouldn't be in and two aren't really welcome in as well. So like, you know, there's pros and cons. You you can get a bit of harassment, um, but you also get access to really important stories and really important research that I think for men, they would be a bit more stunted for them. You were embedded at one stage with the Peshmerga. These are the Kurdish independent fighters. Tell, tell us about that. So I've, I've been embedded with them, um, but realistically, like what was going on with them at the time was they were just sort of patrolling their borders. So they were this sort of ISIS had a de facto border kind of set up between it was Telafar and then the Kurds had the other side. Um, and I was with them there. But I mean, like all of these borders have since moved, you know. Um, but in terms of embeds, it's interesting now because you see a lot of what's happening, let's say, with um journalists being embedded, a lot of us don't necessarily need to go in. Like, I know with Bagus that you have to, with certain battles, you have to go in, obviously, with like YPG or they're the Kurdish militia in Syria. 
um, or, you know, different groups. But I think generally in terms of operating, you can go, you will get like the last time I was there, I went to see an Irish prisoner who was in a prison that was quite far away from where I initially thought he would be um, in Syria. That was in December. And, you know, I had to be escorted with um, the YPG down to him um, because he was so far away. So that's the kind of type of thing that that's happening now. You're not necessarily getting because most of Raqqa, all of this is finished. Um, we can't get access to Idlib the way we, I suppose, like to get access to Idlib. Um, so you're seeing more like that you kind of end up going along with uh, people to access certain certain regions. But that's the way Syria has been now for a long time. What about stuff you've seen? I mean, to put it as crude as perhaps, have you seen a lot of dead bodies? Well, like it's horrific, you know. I mean, they, they leave them on the streets to rot as like a sign of of um, victory, let's put it like that. Um, and when you, when you say when of, you say they, Norma, oh, every side, every side. Right, like right. I mean, when you talk about Syria, especially, and you talk about like the base level of humanity, it's just gone. And um, there is no, there, it's it's become almost like <laughs> a political foot, football. So people talk about Syria in abstracts in the West. So they'll say, well, I think it's great if Russia gets in there and kills all those terrorists or um, if, you know, if Turkey gets in there. Like people are talking about this all in sort of like abstract ways of looking at it. But in reality, what you're looking at is piles of dead bodies. You're looking at, um, you know, children with wounds, like physical wounds that are infected. You're looking at like Al-Hal, the camp where all of the ISIS um, you know, members, let's say, are now in, in Syria. Like those children are like robots. They don't even acknowledge you. Like when you see, that's the first time for me that I go to a refugee camp and the kids don't come up laughing and smiling because, you know, as a foreigner, they think, well, you know, maybe it's different for them. Their days are so so mundane and everything is so grey and banal. When they see something different, they're attracted to it. But in the case of Al-Hal, they scowl at you, you know, small children. Um that kind of stuff, seeing kids walking around with injuries and, you know, it's it's all there and it's there. You know, we're reporting on it. We're showing everybody that it's there. But on the other side, you have people who will tell me that my images are fake or the videos I'm bringing back are fake or and that can be quite frustrating because, you know, I witness it and I'm trying to tell other people what's happening. But you have, a you know, another wall then that you have to get past where people will tell you that you're lying. And um, so that's another layer of it as well. Do you get the impression that the outside world doesn't care about what's going on? Yeah, they don't care. They don't like, I mean, I think for people, it's Syria has become so normalized, like the violence in Syria has become so normalized now that people just simply don't. I think it's not necessarily actually apathy would be possibly the wrong way to look at it. I think people are just overwhelmed and it's so, Syria is so grotesque. And it is so, you know, we have sunk to new lows that we, I never personally thought was possible for humans to go to. And I think for a lot of people, when they switch on the TV, they probably in their heads go, oh, well, that's another war going on there at the moment or that war is still going on. The gravity of what's happening to people there is almost too much for us to process. So like falling into like simple solutions like, you know, everybody's a terrorist or these people are good or those people are bad. It's a, it's a simplistic way to process what we really don't want to look at is that we have all let this happen. Um, and that I think like the West is 100% complicit in all of this as well, which is the other thing, you know, that, that's very hard for people to swallow. 
And in Syria, prior to the outbreak of war, it was a very developed country relative to other countries in the region. As far as I can see, it was pretty progressive. And the, the picture you're painting, the, the, the type of lows it has sunk to, why has it, Syria in particular sunk to those lows? Well, I definitely wouldn't use the word progressive to describe the series. Uh, Relatively speaking, (laughs) no, I I would have to add. There's an interesting, there's like, there is a philosophy, well, a theory, let's say, that says, you know, it's the the racism of low expectations. I think it was Majid Nuance who said it first, but, um, and he's problematic anyway. But the thing with this is that we, you know, can live it up in Ireland and we can have all of our rights and we can have everything. But if we describe something as, let's say, relatively progressive for the region, we're saying, well, those people there in that country, you're a look, that's good enough for them. They don't need any more. I I didn't mean it that way, no, to be honest with you, but I I take your point. I'm not saying it specifically about your comment. I'm saying it just in general, that that's a view that is widely held. And that's why people have sort of a nostalgia that they would say that Syrians, oh, it must have been much better for you before the war. But there are a lot of young Syrians, like I have friends who were activists at the very beginning of their revolution, and they just didn't want to live like that way anymore. They didn't want to live in fear. You know, they didn't want to live um, with this mind controlled. And it's the same thing with my friends from Iraq. You know, I have a friend who, like, would tell, when you talk about Saddam, he gets very upset because they were starved, you know, under sanctions, but he still hates Saddam, you know. So there is like, there's a lot going on. I think in terms of Syria, like describing Syria as this utopia, which is, I guess, the more like Russian, pro Russian um, narrative would be that it was utopia before the the revolution happened, but the revolution happened for a reason, you know, like the, these people were, were oppressed and like Kurds, for example, had no rights. Um, you had a lot of Palestinians who weren't treated particularly well. It wasn't this utopia. Um, and, and this has been horrific. Everything that's happened has been, you know, there's stuff that I, I can't process sometimes when I think about the stories people have told me directly about their families and things I've seen myself. But I mean, I think it's important to understand that it came from that the the revolution came from a place of, you know, of change and hope. And And the Arab Spring and all that as well was around the same time. And there was hope that that would bring change. But the fact that Assad looks like he's going to remain in control, does that mean that there will be any change? Well, I mean, that's the that's the kind of heartbreaking Thing that people are faced with. Okay, so like even if you think about it, live right now, you had it's nearly a million, I think it's 900,000 people have just fled into this tiny enclave because they're being pursued from the sky um, by a campaign of bombardment that doesn't discriminate, you know, if it doesn't care if someone's a little kid, it doesn't care if, you know, um, if you're a, a, an Al Qaeda member, like it really doesn't care, you know, that's indiscriminate targeting. So like he has killed more people in the Syrian civil war than any other group combined. Um, so for for him to stay in power means that most people can't return. Um, you know, I, I have Syrian friends in Ireland who were in Sednaya in his prisons, you know, and they can never go back. Um, a lot of Syrians who live in Europe can't go back if he stays there because he will torture them. He's, you know, he's like they, he, they, they were, there is no guarantee that these people will be protected. So the displacement will continue. And that's the thing I find kind of really strange about this. How can people say, okay, well, we're going to resettle Syrians back into Syria? Well, they ran from him. So you keep him there and then you want to resettle them back into a place where they're terrified. And, you know, that's that's the point that people don't, I think, want to understand or seem to. 
the nature of what's happened over there, Norma, and you know the way you've described it, the way we've seen the even the television pictures and that, that there, you know, it definitely is horrific. But for somebody like you, as I understand, you've been back and forth. You've come back to Ireland. You're currently in Australia, but you've come back to Ireland a number of occasions. It must be a very unbelievable experience to go from what we regard as relative development and prosperity in this country into that milieu and be back and forth between here and there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is, it's very, it is, it does upset you. It does upset you to see the disparity and it does upset you to see the, you know, the fact that you have kids. I have like, you know, a lot of nieces and nephews in Ireland who live, you know, the, the, they have great lives, you know, they live in rural Kerry and they really, you know, they have wonderful opportunities, wonderful childhoods. And then you go to somewhere like Al Hall and you have these kids that, you know, they, they were born in possibly the worst circumstances you can imagine. You know, they're, they're, will they even get out of these camps? Will there, will, even if they do get out, they will be stigmatized for being the children of ISIS, potentially for the rest of their lives, if they're not killed in some crosshair that, you know, some conflict that could escalate in that region. Then you also have all of these kids, they're living out in the open in Idlib, they don't even have blankets. You know, there was like a really graphic um, image of Life, I found this one really poignant. It was a father holding a sign saying he would sell a kidney for a tent just to keep his kids warm because of freezing temperatures. So there's, you know, there's that huge disparity. But I think the most, I think the thing that I find the most frustrating is when people don't want to acknowledge that disparity. So they want to then cloud everybody in Syria as a terrorist or as, you know, and they, they sort of want to explain it away in their heads that people deserve that suffering. And that's really hard to swallow. That's when you start to get, you know, kind of you wonder what's the point of doing all of this if people won't believe what you're saying and that they want to be reductive. Like, I mean, they're saying everybody in Idlib is a terrorist. How is a six year old a terrorist? You know, you have the refugee issue as well. Understandably, quite naturally, people are fleeing Syria for their lives and you have varying attitudes towards the um the amount of refugees that are coming out of the region as well then in places like Western Europe. Yeah, like, I mean, we failed politically to deal with this in any any shape or form. Like, I mean, for example, empowering Turkey, we followed like a policy of appeasement with the AKP government. And like Erdogan is a dictator. He's a horrific dictator. He's, you know, like academics, journalists, feminists, everybody is being locked up in that country. And Europe's answer to it was to throw money at him. Now, we saw he threw that back in the EU's face quite recently and said, you know, like a few days ago, it was like, literally, I'm opening the borders, I can do whatever I want. He basically had a temper tantrum. But at the same time, he is the only person. And I mean, I I can't go back to Turkey. So for me to compliment their regime on any level is quite funny. But um, for he was the only one standing in the path of that slaughter. Like we have a sort of ceasefire now, let's say. But he was the only one. So when you have somebody like, Erdogan as a custodian of European values by stopping, you know, millions of innocent people being killed. You've really got to ask yourself, well, where is the EU at the moment? And how have we let this happen? How have we elected politicians? How have we, you know, kept this machinery going that feels like this is an appropriate way to deal with children fleeing from war? Um, and I think especially after World War II, you think we would have learned lessons on this, but it, clearly we haven't. How did you um, end up banned from Turkey? I write about the Kurdish question. So like when you write about the Kurdish question, you're no longer welcome in the Turkish state. 
because that's the nature of it's not even even if I didn't write about the Kurds, even if I wrote about feminism, I'd still get kicked out. You know, like that's the way that they are at the moment. Even actually um, Turkish journalists who were you know living in Turkey for quite a while had Turkish press cards. They got arrested when they were covering the border because the Turkish um, border guards were actually firing tear gas across the border. So. To, you know, if you were taking photos of that, you would be immediately be arrested. Like Turkey has imprisoned, I think, more journalists than anywhere else in the world at the moment. So and being in, kicked out is surprising. In your case, Norma, I mean, were, were you arrested and held and put on a plane or how exactly was it done? No, it's it's done very diplomatically. They returned me. Um, I crossed from Iraq into Turkey. They returned me. To Iraq? To Iraq. And then when I've applied previously for visas and stuff, you know, they, they just say that you, you're not you're not coming back. Um, and then when I've actually reported on the war in the southeast of Turkey, I've actually had letters sent to news stations in Ireland saying that what I'm saying is lies by the embassy in Dublin. So like, yeah. it's a it's 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 frustrating, you know, because you build up a body of work and you want to go forward with that work and the curtains come down. But I think I'm not the only person who's experienced this. It's really common for anybody working in the region. So it's not you know, I'm not alone. I'm not a solo operator in that regard. You, you've also encountered um, ISIS fighters who were fighting for ISIS, some of whom had spent time in Galway. Um, yeah. Did these individuals become radicalised while in Galway? Well, the body of work that I'm doing at the moment is looking at Ireland and ISIS. So I think I'm going to conclude that now in the next trip out. I'll be finished with that. I think I'll have basically ascertained as much information as I'll be able to to do on um, Irish citizens who joined ISIS or Irish residents who joined ISIS. So what, what happened in Galway was fascinating. And um, Galway being, I went to I went to NUIG. That was where I did, you know, my undergraduate. So I was really shocked to think that like my university, this had happened. You had two medical students. One was a visiting medical student from um, Malaysia. NUIG makes quite a lot of money out of these visiting Malay students. And he was part of the NUIG Islamic Society. I think they were called the Muslim Youth Society at that point. So this young man meets another um, Iraqi Irish boy who had finished. He had just graduated and they were sort of being groomed by another another older man who was an IT worker in Galway. And from those two boys got a bus. They left Galway, they got a bus together, they told people that they were just going away for a few days. One flew to Iraq and was killed in Iraq, and the other one flew to Syria, where his father actually flew from Malaysia and travelled into Syria to try and rescue him. I mean, his story is so heartbreaking. The father tried, he spent tens of thousands to try and get his son back. And when he was in in Syria, he was actually in an explosion. A car bomb went off nearby and he, he nearly died trying to get his son back. Um, so these two boys went and then there was also um, the man who sort of nurtured them, who's actually mentioned on Sky News documents. And this man was, from what I can ascertain, he was the guru of the whole thing. He was the guy who planned it all. So you have these people. It, it, you know, I, I went to Galway the last time I was back in Ireland and I met the imams and I asked them and nobody really knew about them. They knew that they had a stand uh, on Shop Street where they would you know, give dawah, like trying to convert people and to tell people about Islam and that they knew that these people were quite hardcore. But a lot of the time what you'll find with the people who decide to join ISIS and to become extremists is that they'll actually pull out from the Islamic community. And they'll, they might go to mosque on Friday, but they'll have meetings afterwards with small groups, you know. Were the two boys radicalised 
principally by this third individual or would it have been more online? Like, was it physically, I mean, was it physical it, interaction it, with this man that basically they sat down and he spoke to them? He, he was re- largely responsible for radicalising them. It's fascinating how quickly people want to jump onto the fact that everybody's radicalised online. That's simply not true. Right. These guys went to, um, they were they were radicalised physically in Ireland. I mean, they probably had, let's say, a predisposition towards that. Because, you know, when you see what happens in Syria and you're watching it, I'm sure they were getting quite upset about, like, all these Muslims being killed overseas. So it doesn't take much to fan those flames. Um, and they were, yeah, they were, they were definitely encouraged, egged on the whole way in 3D, you know, like, you know, in Ireland, basically. And then what I found, because I'm studying this phenomenon in Ireland, we're such a small country. I'm currently looking at a family. I mean, there was a girl, she was 15 when she was taken, like her parents took her to ISIS territory. Now, we don't know where she is. We're hoping she's alive. It's unlikely, to be honest, because she would have made contact at this point. But, you know. I'm still trying to find out information on her. But I mean, all of this stuff happened in the country. Like it happened, small groups meeting up, like drinking tea, talking to each other. Like everybody likes to put this out as it's a completely foreign problem and that we don't have anything like this in Ireland. We do. Um, and there needs to be a greater push to sort of when people feel alienated, they're more inclined to like um, push out their extreme views. You know, they'll jump on them and they'll run as far as they can with them. And like Irish society has a tendency to alienate people who are different. Would you reckon that is a, a factor that people, particularly say, for instance, of a, a Muslim background or from another country, that they would feel alienated? Even, for example, you mentioned Galway, even in a city like Galway, which I think has a, a reputation for being yeah, relatively inclusive. Yeah, it's very hippie. It's yeah. very left-wing and very hippie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I still, yeah, it's it's about self-perception as well. You know, it's like, do you feel different from the people around you? I, I feel like with the Malaysian student, I feel like Ireland did let him down. I'm in touch with his father. His father's still very upset about it. Um, he's not angry with Ireland. I, I feel like he personally should be angrier with the country because I feel like these kids weren't taken care of. You know, he came when he was quite young into a new culture um, and he was preyed on is the only way to use it. And he was groomed in the country because he never had these types of ideas in his own country. It all happened to him when he moved here or well moved there to Ireland, yet to Galway. So that that's something that we really need to look at. And the other thing is, I think you one thing I find with the Muslim community in Ireland, when I'm reaching out for them to try and get more information on the stories that I'm working on, people are very um, cautious with me. They don't want to speak to me. Usually when they find out at work in the region, they can be a little bit warmer, but everybody's afraid of being connected to people, you know, because they're afraid then that they'll become targets of the security apparatus of the country or by, you know, we have we have a massive movement of far right in Ireland. Like we it's huge. I know because I encountered it on both sides, either they were cheerleading me or they were attacking me. Um, and it, the fact that that is that's something that really needs to be looked at um, more because they exist and while they're you know they're out there. So you can imagine if you are the cousin of somebody who went to join ISIS, you would be very slow to talk to a journalist because that could mean that that journalist you know could p- publish your picture in the paper and then next thing you have the police at the door and then the next thing you have the far right outside your house. So like it is you know it is complicated because we do need to study well what happens to these people? How do they end up going from like Galway to getting killed in Syria? How does that happen? And how does like for example with Lisa Smith, how did she end up going from Louth to Syria as well? So the process is very important and I think we need to to study that, but it seems kind of like people aren't that interested in it. How would we go about studying it, would you suggest? 
I, th- I think honestly, it's like anything, just sitting down, talking to people who knew them, talking to people who were with them at certain points. It's just old school hack journalism for, you know, that's the only way I would describe it. Bringing people, talking to people and finding out, do they have, you know, online profiles, looking, doing, looking at it from that perspective too, and kind of putting together a picture, almost like a psychological profile of somebody. Um, and I, I mean, journalists do that all the time, but it shouldn't really kind of, well, I'm going to put my body of work together. I'm going to publish it. And then hopefully it will be useful for people in the future and that they will you know, use it as a resource going forward to maybe looking at how how do we stop vulnerable young people from being exploited in that way. Would you hope to publish it in book form? I'm not sure yet. It depends. It really depends. Because like, again, like I said, you've a lot of barricades and the work itself isn't the easiest there's huge security risks with this as well like you know it is isis and they still have quite a lot of money and they still have quite a lot of reach and they still have people in ireland and they still have people in the uk so it's it's kind of you're always one foot in and one foot out you always like you push it and then you go oh wait did i go too far and i just because i talk to people who would have very radical opinions a lot you know and sometimes you know you wonder well that person now knows it knows my name they know who i am um, and so obviously that can make you quite nervous. But I, I still feel I feel a lot of I feel a lot of empathy for young people who didn't have any say. For example, this family I'm looking at at the moment, like they had no choice. They were brought by their parents. The other thing is, how do we make um, like better deterrence for people? Like, for example, if I take my kid and I join a radical organization and nothing happens to me, then that's pretty, you know, that I'm setting a template there that anyone can do that at any time. And like some of these kids were quite young, you know, they were infants when they were taken away. And, you know, I feel like the state has some responsibility to those kids. Yeah, I think, as you say, I think it is an area that hasn't been explored much and could well do with it. And I'd look forward to um, when you put your body of work together in whatever form. For yourself, Norma, you're going back again. Um, do, do you see an end, a point where you feel you'll have your work done in that region? Or is this something that's, as they say, got into your bloodstream? Well, the Kurds, the Kurdish question is something that it is definitely, you know, I, I'm fascinated by their story. And I mean, they're the largest stateless group in the world. They're spread out amongst four countries. They have, you know, I followed them through their fight against ISIS to their fight against the states that oppressed them. I mean, honestly, like doing even a small book on the Kurds would take decades. Um, but in terms of covering the Syrian civil war, hopefully, you know, there will be um, some sort of political solution. But in terms of justice, I don't see that happening. So I can't imagine that most people would stay covering that for much longer in the field because you're seeing just violations go on every day and there's absolutely no justice with the Kurdish question, it's strange because there's still some, there's, there's still, it's going to be really interesting to look at this in, in a, let's say, post-state age, which I think, like, I'm just saying that in terms of how we're seeing so many non-state actors come up and emerge and control chunks of land. They're a fascinating case study in that because they have a whole other political philosophy that is totally different to anything else in the region. And um, they're a complete anomaly in the region. But yet they're managing to hold ground. So that that that's something that, you know, is drawing a lot of interest internationally, not just me, other people as well, you know. And finally, for yourself, could you see a scenario whereby, and I don't mean to be glib, but you could 
have a notion that you might like to return home and perhaps cover Leinster House or the courts or what is relatively, in, in, in human and, and journalistic terms, mundane stuff, or has the idea of war zones and the obvious injustices that are perpetrated, the most horrific injustices, that that is something that you'll, um, you'll find very hard to leave? Well I, started, well, I started out writing for Vice about the austerity because me and all my mates were broke in Dublin. And, you know, like it was kind of, OK, well, nobody's really talking about the water charge movements and what was going on. And there's still like a massive vacuum for all of that stuff. But, yeah, I don't know. Like you never know what's going to happen in the future. You never know what way you're going to feel. Um, like right now, it's just a case of getting this year's work done. And then maybe looking at it again. It's a tough gig. It is tough. Like people take your work and they don't pay you. I've constantly like that's 30 percent of my time is spent chasing work that I've done in the field that has just been appropriated by news agencies who don't even. And, and like other journalists who just don't feel like paying me for that. And bear in mind, like your costs are quite high when you go out. So financially, it's tough. Obviously, like emotionally, it can be difficult to constantly be surrounded by kind of like the lack of justice really is the thing because you, you want to be useful to people. That's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be highlighting people's stories and showing people that, you know, like look at what's happening over here, guys. Like, you know, and then hopefully that leads to some political traction and, you know, something gets done. But really in terms of this, that's not happening. Um, so that's kind of disheartening, let's say, because you don't feel useful anymore. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I go back and and do the, the Kerry beat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm guessing your, 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 your family in Kerry would probably be delighted if you did on the basis of, of, of the danger you're exposed to. But I suppose that's, as you say, that's the nature of the job. I think journalism everywhere is dangerous right now. I think every anyone who's a journalist, they're either being attacked. I see like people in Ireland being attacked on Twitter constantly just for trying to do their jobs. People being physically assaulted trying to do their jobs. It's you know like everywhere it's under attack. I've been attacked on Twitter, Norma, but I can assure you one thing. I have never, to the best of my knowledge, ever faced anything like the dangers are put up with the hardships that you have. And on the basis of the journalism you do, thank you very much for that. Thank you also for joining us on today's podcast. Thank you. That was Norma Costello. Um, going back once more to report on Syria and Iraq. That's it for today folks. I'd like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon. You can access us through the Irish Examiner website or on Spotify, SoundCloud or Apple Music. You can contact me at mick.clifford.examiner.ie to let me know what exactly you think about the podcast. May it be good, bad or indifferent or you can also get me on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon. <laughs>